Well, Happy New Year's, everybody. Glad that you could join us today for our Sunday worship. Um, as, as mentioned in the announcements, this isn't just a new year that our church is entering into, but a new season in our church life. If you've been with us for the past few years, you know that we've been going through a, a replanting process in our church for since 2019. And one way our staff likes to describe it is we've been literally laying down the foundations for a while. And the foundation is so important because without a good foundation, a building collapses. But now the foundation is completed. We we're hoping to construct things as well. Uh, things obviously got delayed a bit because of COVID and uh, adjusting to post-COVID life. Uh, but next week, as mentioned by uh, our sister Jessica, we begin a new chapter of our church, a church launch as Grace Hill Church. Uh, so expect, again, for our church to have a new name, uh, new social media handles, uh, new signage, new website. Um, and I'm sure when you come next week or as the week progresses, a lot of us naturally, we're going to pay attention to the name. Like, oh, why would you guys name the, change the name or the signage? Why did you pick those colors or the website? Oh, why is, it, why is it designed that way? And that's just the way people, what we pay attention to. When something new takes place in an organization, we just want to see what is uh, like the branding and the nameage and so forth. But I feel like what we pay attention to is really different than what God pays attention to, especially when it comes to his church. While we pay attention to the new signs and the new name, the new website, I really believe God, he pays attention to the people. What kind of people will this be? What kind of community will this be as this new chapter unfolds? Will our church not just say we're a new community, but will we actually live as a new community? And if so, what does that even look like? What is our church supposed to look like during this upcoming season? I'll tell you what happens if it naturally happens, if we are not intentional. We'll be like most OC churches in the area. Not, I'm not going to name OC churches, but this is the general feel of how OC churches, Orange County churches function. People come on Sundays when they're free, if they have time. And when they're free and they have time, they'll make sure they come at least for the TED Talk they view this as a TED Talk, a time for you to just get inspiration and feel good a little bit about the week. And then post-worship, once it's done, hopefully there's good snacks afterwards. Hopefully you could chat with the one or two friends that you have at the church. And if you don't have anyone like that, the church is not friendly. And so you say, "That's I'm going to go to a different church. And then come Monday, your life is exactly the way it was as if that Sunday ever happened. It's exactly the same. And that's the typical OC church. That's how Orange County functions. It's not just the churches, but the people. That's just kind of how we are. But the reason why for our church, Grace Hill Church, one thing that we want to be, not to say that we are, but that we want to be, is we want to be a community that shines forth as a city on a hill. We want to be a community that in a world filled with brokenness and sadness, that we could be a community that's been transformed by the grace of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I tell you what, the OC does not need another OC church. There are plenty of OC churches out there if you're looking for friends, you're looking for a TED Talk, you're looking for good snacks. There are, I could point you to so many churches that could do that for you. But the hope here is at this church, we can be a new church, a new people, a new community. But it starts with the people. It starts with us and the spirit of God dwelling in us. That's how it's gonna feel new. And that's why we're going through this series, this new sermon series that's a four-part series, we call it All Things New. Because we wanna take the next few weeks to paint a picture of the type of church that we hope we can be here in Orange County. 
And so as mentioned earlier, next week we're going to have our church launch where we're going to be inviting a dear friend of mine personally, but also a, a great speaker. His name is Steve Bang. He's the lead pastor of Mariner's Church in North Irvine. And he'll be uh, giving us a new charge as a church. The week after that, we'll be talking about our mission. There's a new mission for our church, pretty much what does our church do? And we're going to explain what that new mission is. At the members preview, we'll talk about it and let you guys know, but we'll fully elaborate it on, in two weeks. And then in the last part will be a new life, meaning what practices are we planning to do as a church. But today, I want to take it macro. I'm going to kind of take a step back and talk about uh, a new way. I want to describe a new path that I think our church needs to take in order for us to really function like a city on a hill. In order for us to really function as a church that's been transformed by the grace of Christ. And so if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 39 to 40. If you don't have that, we'll have uh, in the back as well. Luke chapter 6, verses 39 to 40. I'm only going to be talking about this passage and referencing it throughout, but so we're, not gonna, we're actually going to be jumping around a bunch of different texts. Uh, but for today, we're, for at least to start off the passage, we're going to just look at Luke chapter 6, even though we're looking at a bunch of other passages. So Luke chapter 6, verses 39 to 40. So if you're there with me, it's starting in verse 39. This is Jesus talking, and this is what he says, starting in verse 39. Jesus also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This is the reading of God's word. A few years ago, my family and I, we traveled with another family, and we went to Sequoia National Park. And when you go to Sequoia National Park with young kids, you try to entertain them as best as possible. And one thing that we do to entertain our children is we went to what's called the Crystal Caves. I don't know if you guys heard of Crystal Caves. It's just a cave. You just go in there and you explore, nothing too special. But one thing that stood out to me was the tour guide. The tour guide who was there, he was very adamant saying, hey, we have to stick together. We need to stick together, single file line. And he had two flashlights. He gave the first flashlight to the person standing in front. He gave the last flashlight to the person standing in the very back, saying, make sure you keep those flashlights on because the one rule we have here is we stick together. And the reason why is because in these caves, there are different pathways that you can go and if you're not careful, it's very easy to go the wrong way. It's very easy to get lost. And so we started walking, and this tour guide did not know who our kids were because our kids started going crazy. They were just screaming and jumping because it's dark. And I remember the tour guide, he was trying to explain all the caves. And at one point, he had an extra flashlight, gave it to me, go, hey, just go. Just, just go wherever you need the kids to go. And my brand, I'm like, dude, that's your one rule is for us to stick together. But, he, you know, he kind of had it where we just had to go on our own. And so my friend and I, we took our kids and we're walking around with a flashlight. And what ended up happening was as we started walking, we just completely lost our tour group. They were just gone. So it was pitch black. It was dark. And we had a choice. What we could have done is we could have chosen to find our own way out of the cave. But it was very possible if we did that, we would choose the wrong way. And we'd get totally lost. And so what we instead try to do is we try to find a tour group again. We try to hear the noise of people talking. We try to see those two flashlights that were shining because we knew that this tour guide, he knew these caves and he could lead us the right way. William Irving, he's an author of this book called Miss Living. And he says, and pretty much the premise of his book is that, you know, there's many ways you can choose to live your life. And it's really easy to choose the wrong way of life. It's very easy. We don't notice it at first because oftentimes we're very short-sighted. We just think of it decision by decision. But you're going, on a, you're going on a path based on your decisions. 
For example, which career should I choose? Should I choose this career path? Which city should I settle in? Should I settle in this city? Which school should my kids go to? Do I really want to plant roots for my kids in this school? And our hope is that with these decisions that we stress about, that we can look back going, that was a good decision. Because now look where I'm at. Happy. Satisfied. And our worst nightmare is that based upon decisions, we're at the, a few years later, we have deep regret. Deep remorse about what we decided to do. But what Irvin argues is that more important than those individual decisions is, who are you trusting to lead you, to guide you, to make those decisions? That's what's more important. What's compelling you to choose one over the other? That's why in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says the same thing in chapter 6 in the passage we just read. Jesus says in that parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? You see, depending on who you are trusting to lead your life, your choices may lead you into a pit. It could lead you into a place that you did not want to go. And so today what I want to do is I want to do a self-examination for our church as we move into a new year and a new chapter. And New Year is great because New Year is like a reflective moment, right? Like how did I do this past year? What do I want to do this upcoming year? And what I want to do is I want to examine the way we are living our lives. Particularly there are two typical ways that people choose to live their lives. And there is a third way that I want to propose of how we should live our life. So here are the ways. Way number one is the way of the world. Way number two is the way of religion. And way number three is the way of Christ. The way of the world, the way of religion, the way of Christ. Let's examine these ways. Number one, the way of religion. Now, if you grew up in church and went to youth group, you might have been warned by a youth pastor, be be careful of the world. The world is dark. Stay away from the world. Hate the world. What does that mean, though? What does it mean to stay away from the world, to be careful of the world? The most famous passage in the Bible that were most well-known, or probably the best explanation, I think, comes from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. This is, what the, this is what John writes. He writes to the church, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Now, in these three verses, you see this word world. In the Greek, it's cosmos. It's mentioned six times. Six times it's mentioned. And John is warning us about the cosmos or this world. What is John warning us about? Again, if you grew up in youth group in a church, it's kind of like what we hear our pastor, youth pastor's voice. Be careful of drugs. Be careful of partying. Be careful of pagans. Watch out for that. Avoid secular activities. Just go to Christian camps. Listen to Christian music. 95.9, the fish. Do all that. But I would argue, while you could go to details of what John means by the world, I'd actually argue that at a broad level, John is not necessarily warning about the world itself, but he is emphasizing warning about our love for the world. Notice what's not just repeated world, but love, 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 desire, desire, desire. The people who John has in mind are not Christians who are parting it up and interacting with secular things, but what John is thinking about are Christians who are infatuated with the world more than they should be. I like one author, Daryl Dash, he says it like this, quote, what, John is con- what is John condemning in these verses? 
not the pursuit of immoral things. He's condemning the pursuit of temporary things as if they're really important. When our lives are no different from everyone else's and we're pursuing the same things as everyone else, getting ahead, making a name for ourselves, and living the good life, then it's a sign that we don't really get it. Don't chase after them. They don't really matter. And here's the kicker. Here's why John says it's foolish to love the world this way. Verse 17. In the world, it's passing away along with its desires. In other words, the things you are devoting your heart to if you follow the way of the world, it's not going to last. It's going to fade. And so if you give your entire heart to the ways of the world, you're going to find yourself in a pit. You're going to find yourself in a pit. It's going to not end well for you. Um, there's a book about the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, not the Johnny Depp version, not the fake one, the real one, 1971. Uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, there's a, an autobiography about the book, and pretty much uh, the director, Mel Stewart, he shares a story in the book about how his favorite scene that he filmed for the movie how it got deleted. Nobody ever saw it. And here's the scene. The scene was, if you know the premise of the story, it's all about Wonka bars and you get a golden ticket depending on the Wonka bar. If you open it and you're lucky if you get the golden ticket, there's only six of them out there in the whole world. So everyone's looking for a Wonka bar. And randomly in the middle of the movie, there's a man climbing a mountain looking for a guru, looking for someone who could talk to. And then the top of the mountain is this guru just sitting there. And the man goes up and he goes, guru, can you tell me the meaning of life? And the guru goes, give me a Wonka bar first. And so the man goes, okay, and he had a Wonka bar. He gave it to the guru. The guru gets it. He opens it. No golden ticket. And so the guru responds, looking at the man going, you want to know what the meaning of life is? Life is a disappointment. And that's how the scene ends. Now, Stuart, he thought this scene was hilarious. He was like, this is such a good scene. It's so random. It's so intense. And it's about like a Wonka bar. So he thought it was really funny. In fact, it was his favorite scene because it was so random. And he thought everybody would laugh when he saw this scene. But like most movies, they do test screenings where they show the audience the movie, like a test audience. Hey, how do you like the movie? And without fail, for the first three test screenings, the audience, when they saw that scene, nobody laughed. Nobody thought that scene was funny. And Stuart, he was kind of confused. He's like, dude, this is my favorite scene. I thought at least some people would think it's funny. And then when he actually had a psychologist who was a friend of his attend one of the screenings, and they talked about that scene. And the psychologist told Stuart, you know why people aren't laughing at that scene? The message is too real. Because life is a disappointment. It is disappointing. If you're younger, you may be, or it might be tough for some of us to understand this, but... Uh, I talk to younger people all the time, and it's really interesting. When I talk to younger people in our church, and they're like, you know, not really doing well spiritually, or they don't really care about church, or reading their Bibles, and, I, you know, as we talk about it, the kind of general premise that people have when I talk to them is they'll say, I, my life is actually fine without God. I don't really need God. My marriage is, I just got married, it's good. We just purchased a home, it's nice. My career, the trajectory's going well, and I'm, to be honest, Pretty good without church. Good without my Bible. Why do I even need God? And I remember for a, a while that kind of was tough to like grasp. I'm like, oh, why do you need God? Your life does look good. Like, why do you, how could I possibly convince you that you need God? And I remember I was wrestling that for a while until it kind of dawned on me. Not to say this is universally true, but this is what I realized. Oh, you feel that way? Because you're in your 20s. You're in your early 30s. And you only hang out with 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds. 
it's like a Jersey Shore. You're with your Jersey Shore crew, so life feels fine. You're having fun. There's a lot of potential. Everyone's healthy. Everything is good. Why do you need God? Makes sense. But one thing that I, I, I don't tell them this, but my brain, I'm like, man, wait till you get to your late 30s. Wait till you talk to 40-year-olds. Talk to 50-year-olds. Because what ends up happening is, man, life, it gets hard. It gets really hard. And if you're only in your Jersey Shore crew, you are not ready for that type of life. It hits you really hard. I'm about to go dark now, okay? So get, be with me. Okay? I'm about to go pretty dark. But I'll be light again in a little bit. Um, a couple of our dads, we, we, they know what I'm talking about here. But there is this Franciscan priest. His name is Richard Rohr. And he says, you know, there are five essential truths about life that are very difficult to accept. And yet when you think about it, they're deeply true. And the less willing you are to accept this, the less prepared you are for the world. The world, how it's coming to you. You know what those five truths are? Here it is. Here's truth number one. Life is hard. Life is hard, okay? That's the first thing you have to accept. Life is hard. Truth number two. You are not that important. You're not that important. Truth number three. Your life is not about you. Your life is not about you. Truth number four, you are not in control. And truth number five, you are going to die. Happy New Year's. Again, dark, sobering things. And yet when you really think about it, they're true. And they're hard to accept. Why? Because the way of the world tells you the opposite. We think life should be easy. So when life is hard, we're like, what's going on? I guess God's not real. Because we think life should be easy. You're important. You are the most important person in the world. That's what we're told. Life is about you. You're the protagonist. You're the main character. You're in control. You're in control of your life. And you can live forever. Isn't that the premise that we tend to live our life about? Aren't those the five things that we tend to gravitate towards, and yet, it's because we're young. As you get older, you realize how true these five truths are. Life is brutal. Life is brutal. And as you get older, you realize just how brutal life is. And that's why you understand why Stuart, he had to delete that scene. Life is brutally hard, super hard. Let me give you a taste of how I realize how brutally hard life is. It happened during Christmas. This past Christmas with my family. Very subtle scene. Nobody knows about this. It's just a small scene that happened with interaction with my family. I went to my parents' house. Seven grandkids are there. My brother, my sister, all the grandkids are running around. But the kind of the show of the, of the evening was my newborn daughter, Izzy. She was born two months ago. And it was my first time my parents got to really hold her and interact with my daughter. And so I remember in the midst of the chaos of everybody running around, what happened was I see my dad sitting down, and I'm sitting next to him, and everyone's, you know, just talking, and my dad's holding our daughter, and I hear him just in a low voice telling her with, like, a smile saying, I hope I can live long enough to see you go to college. I don't know when I heard my dad say that. I'm like, Dad, college? Like, what are you talking Of course. Like, you're going to see her at her wedding day. My dad's like, ho, 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 ho. He just like starts laughing in his Korean fobby laugh. 
And he goes, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, you know, I'll be 90 by the time she gets married. And I remember that dawned on me for the first time, like, huh, my dad is most likely never going to know which college my kids go to. And it's very unlikely that my dad will ever see any of my kids get married. He's going to be too old. And that reality, when I was driving home, like, I was really awkward in the car ride because, like, I was, like, thinking about that. My wife's like, what's going on? I'm like, nothing. I'm just kind of, like, awkward. But that reality was really painful to accept for me. And it made me realize, like, wow, so much of my hopes and plans, it's in the world. Because I was just disillusioned at that moment, realizing that my dad will never see my kids get older. Painful. Brutally painful to realize that. And this is why Jesus warns. If you follow the way of the world, if the world has your heart, realize your life is going to be slowly marked with disappointment. And it's going to end up in a pit. And the reason why is because you are made for more than what this world has to offer. You are made to be in a relationship with an eternal God. And unless you are able to switch that, it's going to be really hard to not be shaky living in this world. Jack Miller, he's, he's a pastor, and he says it like this, quote, if you have made this ho your home this world and whatever you can possess in it, you are always in the danger of being plunged into insecurities, fears, and losses. But make God your dwelling place, and you have unlosable treasure and a deeper kind of happiness. So what's the implication for us as a church? Let me tell us this. No matter who you are or what you've done, just know we're all prone to follow the ways of the world. I don't care who you are. It happens. We're all prone to this. You guys ever hear of a man named Demas before? A man named Demas? Um, he lived 2,000 years ago. He's not that well known. But he's mentioned the Bible three times. He's mentioned the Bible three times. He is uh, mentioned in the uh, book of Philemon. He's mentioned in the book of Colossians. And he's mentioned in the book of 2 Timothy. And from what we know about Demas is he got mentored by the apostle Paul. Demas, he saw miracles in the early church. Like he saw the spirit move in the church. He was called a fellow worker, meaning like he was like, he went on mission trips. He was like serving in the church. He's that guy you see on the website and his pictures there going faithful Demas. But something happened. Something happened to Demas because he's mentioned faithfully in these letters and suddenly in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, the last letter that Paul writes, look what Paul says. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Something happened to this guy. He loved Jesus his whole life. How could he possibly deny him at one point? Paul tells us. Not because of he was doing partying or these deep drugs or crazy sins. He just loved the world. He just loved the world. And he found his love for the world in this place called Thessalonica. I know you guys in our church. A lot of us, you're more like Demas than not. Meaning that you've been mentored by church leaders your whole life. You've been part of small groups where people have taught you the Bible, loved you, poured into you. A lot of you have served as presidents and leaders of parachurch ministries and campus ministries. A lot of when you were in college, you said, I want to go on missions and be a missionary. Send me, Lord. A lot of you, you desire to like say, hey, I want to glorify God. That was you in your 20s. 
And we think back in those days, if I were to ever fall into the world, it's something crazy, something dramatic that's going to make me fall away. But realize that the fall, falling to the world, it's nothing crazy. It's more often not the slow drift. The slow drift that slowly but subtly happens. It's not you taking cocaine on a random party weekend. More rather, the ways of the world is you working 60 hours a week and you think that's fine. You think that's just how life is. No margin for real relationships except your spouse and that's it and your kid. 60 hours a week because you need the money. That's what it looks like. This slow drift. It's investing all of your free time, all your free time on golf, traveling, fine dining, going, this is my life. It's spending all your money on property, stock options. What can I do with my money to make more money? Very natural, very normal. It's prioritizing only those you care about in your inner circle, my family, my friends, and that's it. And again, that's a normal life. It's the way of the world. It's the way of the world. And the reason why it's the way of the world is because there's, God is not there. There is nothing spiritual about that. And my question for some of us here is, is this how you're living? Are you living in the way of the world right now? Do you sense a Demas-like trajectory for you where eventually this is your life? That's where you're headed. Let me have some real talk for a quick moment. I know how some of you guys are living because I, I talk to you guys all the time. VChat, we message. And I know for some of you, you're living the way of the world. Not because I see your sins, I see your emptiness. You're empty. You're feeling emptier. Because it's been a long time since you sought the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But it's been a long time. Instead, your life is filled with empty hobbies, empty jobs. You're embracing the world. And again, it's fun at first. It's fun in your 20s. It's fun in your early 30s. But you're going to eventually find, like a lot of us do, there's no golden ticket there. There's no golden ticket. So what do you do? What do you do that's the way you're going? Well, here's how a lot of people naturally, what they do. We avoid the trap of the world and we fall into a different trap. And this is called the way of religion. The way of religion is my second point. Religion, what I mean by that is, basically speaking, I try to not do bad things. I try to do good things. I go to church. I try to go to retreats if they're available. I'll go on mission trips if that's the place that I would, I'm called to go. And our hope is that if I follow this religious path, then I will feel better about life. Life will feel more meaningful. Life will feel more fulfilled. And most of us, we're not blatant in this way. Nobody, I think in our church especially, because the gospel is always emphasized, nobody thinks if I'm good, God's going to accept me. We don't, that's not our theology, but that's often our functionality. Just be good, just be good, just do your thing, and it's all good. Realize, if this is your Christianity, just do good, avoid bad things, go to church, pray before meals, that's the way of religion. That's precisely what religion is. Now, in the New Testament, when Jesus Christ comes into the world, one of the main people Jesus interacts with are exactly those types of people, religious people. He sees people who they go to a synagogue, they pray, they try to avoid bad things. And when Jesus sees them, he doesn't go, hey, you're trying really hard. Good job. Hey, you're at least at synagogue. Mm, worthy. No, when Jesus looks at them, you know what he says? Woe to you. 
Woe to you. Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 to 15. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you. And here's the kicker. You make people twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Holy cow. Do you catch that? Hey, that's a crazy line. There's the way of the world. When you come into religion and you do religion, you come out worse. Twice as bad. A child of hell. What in the world? Why does religion make people worse? Going to church, trying to read your Bible. Why does that make people worse people? Aren't they at least trying to act spiritual? I really didn't grasp this until I started reading, again, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Have you guys ever read that book, one of Lewis's masterpieces? And if you don't know, the, ba the basic premise of The Screwtape Letters is you have a demon named Screwtape, it's imaginary, and a demon named Wormwood. Screwtape's the mentor, Wormwood is like the little min minion. And he is trying, the minion, Wormwood, he is tormenting an individual, they call him the patient, it's just a normal dude. And their whole goal is to make sure that guy doesn't love God. That's the whole demon plot. And Screwtape's just writing letters to Wormwood saying, hey, do this, do this, do this. Now in one chapter, I think it's chapter 12, in one of the letters, what Screwtape does is he writes to Wormwood. And he goes, hey, I've been observing what you've been doing with the patient. Good job. He's in a good place right now. You know why? Because this person, he is far from God, but he's still going to church. Perfect. That is the perfect place to be. And here's why. Quote, this is screw tape writing. He says, quote, as long as that person retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And while he thinks that, we do not have to contend with the explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognized sin, but only with this vague, though uneasy feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. In other words, you know what Lewis is saying? The reason why the way of religion is so bad is because it creates this delusion that you're closer to God when you're not. It creates this delusion that you're doing good, that God is good with you, but you're actually just as far as you were before you start adopting this church attendance thing. It makes you not fully aware of your sin, nor even want to dealing with your sin, but just I, just, I know something's off, but it's okay. I'll just keep serving. This is something that God actually does not like. You ever have a person in your life where he's like, hey, you're my best friend. And you're like, dude, I barely know you. You ever have a person like that? We all have one, right? We all have one. And you know what makes that awkward is because that person will say you're their best friend, but they don't act like one. Like they never ask how you're doing. If you're going through a hard time, they're not there for you. When's your birthday, they barely acknowledge your birthday's presence. But they put on the IG like, hey, look at me and my best friend. We're best friends and closest friends. And it's like, dude, that's really annoying. Like we are not best friends. Like why are you saying that? I think this is exactly how God feels with religious people. You act like you love Jesus. You act like you're his best friend. You post in your IG, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower. And when Jesus sees this, he blasts them. He blasts religious people. You don't even know me, he says. You act like you know me. You don't even know who I am. And this explains why there's some Christians who go to church their whole lives, they're exactly the same. High school, college, married, parents, nothing's changed. They're exactly the same. And the reason why this dynamic takes place is because religion, all it does is change your behavior 
Whereas God, he's looking for the heart. He's trying to do something much deeper. I like how one author's name, Robert Mulholland, he says, you know when the spirit of God really enters his heart? It works at four levels. Four levels. Here's level number one. He calls it blatant sins. When the spirit enters into your heart, you realize, you know, I shouldn't do these bad things that I already knew were bad. Uh, I shouldn't kill people. I shouldn't do drugs. shouldn't punch people. That's, and we know, everyone knows that's bad. And the spirit of God just mm, confirms that. Now, level two, when the spirit of God gets even deeper with you, it's not just blatant sins now. It's willful disobedience, he calls it. Pretty much, hmm, there are things the world thinks is okay, but God says you probably shouldn't do that. For example, don't just not punch people. You shouldn't hold a grudge. That'll kill you eventually. Don't just uh, avoid drugs. You got to avoid drunkenness. You got to avoid drunkenness. Don't just avoid sleeping around with everybody. Avoid sleeping with anybody who's not your spouse. That's level two. Religion stops there. Religion says, and when I have that, I'm good. But the spirit of God is actually meant to go a little bit deeper. Level three, he calls unconscious sins. And it's at this point you go, hmm, not just bad things I do, but man, I have a bad heart. You realize how selfish you are? You notice how prideful you react? You notice how little priority you give to Jesus? That's level three. And level four, this is the big one, deep-seated structures of trust. Things that you really put all of your hopes in, that you're not even aware that you're doing that. And when the Spirit of God is getting deep in you, he is awakening how so much of your wounds come from family. There's all these wounds from desiring achievement, approval, and again, what religion does, pay attention to the top two, never go down to the bottom two. And that's how a lot of us function in our Christianity. And that's why your faith, it's often measured by how much you read, how much you pray, good behavior, bad behavior, nothing to do with the heart. The problem is if God is doing a real work inside of you, then he is trying to go into you and get deeper with you. It's what he wants. That's how his spirit works. Now, I know for some of us here, the ways of the world, we're all prone to it. And we are kind of aware of it. But I think a lot of us, the way of religion, you just accepted it. That's just kind of your Christianity in this church. And I know this is kind of true because a lot of us, we say we're Christian, but nothing about your Christianity makes you happy. There is zero joy in your Christian faith. Instead, this is what it is. I have to go to church. Oh, I have to go. I have to read my Bible. I know I should. I know I should. I have to serve in ministry. I got to do it. I have to do this. I have to do that. Your Christian life sounds horrible. Sounds like a miserable, miserable dead marriage. Sounds terrible. And I can't help but think the reason why it feels like that is because it's not Jesus. It's religion. You've embraced a dead religion. You've settled for a dead religion. And now you are living this low-grade misery the rest of your life. At least the way of the world, it's kind of fun. You have some fun there. And you get really miserable sometimes. Religion, you're just miserable all the time. Low-grade misery. But realize Jesus, when he came into the world, he didn't say, I came into the world so that you can follow the rules so that you can know what you have to do. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, I came here to be the way, the truth, and the life. I came here to give you life. That's what Jesus promises. And that leads to the last point, which is the way of Christ. The way of Christ. The way the world leads to misery, 
way of religion leads to low-grade misery. What's the better way? Jesus tells us in chapter 14 of the book of John, he says, quote, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, he looks at us. He sees the ways we're going. And Jesus basically goes to you, you guys are a freaking mess. We're all messes. But I love you. I love you. And I invite you to start a new way. Start a new way today. Now, what does that way mean? What does Jesus mean when he says he is the way? Notice Jesus is not saying, I'll teach you the way. He doesn't say, I'll show you the way. What does Jesus say? I am the way. I am the way. What does that mean? I can't help but think what the way of Christ, what that basically means is a life with Christ. A life with him. Not just a part of your life. Not just the past of your life. Not just the future. All of life. Not just church on Sundays and that's the one time you spend with Jesus. Not just the five-minute QTs in the morning that you spend with Jesus. Not just your summers that you go overseas for Jesus. Your entire life, Jesus is present. He's there. Not just in the surface level, but even in the deep parts of your life. Jesus is there. A life with Jesus means this real, constant, intimate relationship with him where you feel he's there with you all the time. Because when that's there, that shapes you to your core. Jesus is meant to not just be this idea or this moral code. The Bible constantly describes Jesus a relationship with him in always relational terms. It's always the bride of Christ when you believe in Jesus. You're now the bride. You're now sons of God. You're now the family of God. All relationships. That's why when scripture says you leave Jesus, you're not just leaving a set of ideas or a political party. It says you're leaving a person. It calls us adulterers because it's a relationship that we're talking about here. And this is what the world and the church needs more than ever. We need somebody with us, not just in the past or the future, but right now. What do I mean by that? You know, uh, one thing that I feel got deformed in the law of Christianity is, hey, if you want to feel close to Jesus, just think about the cross. Think about the cross and that should solve it. Now, on the one hand, amen, I'm all about the gospel. But that's like me saying, hey, if you want to love your wife, think about your wedding. Remember your wedding day 10 years ago? Think about that. When I think about that, I'm like, yes, the vows. But that's it. It makes me secure in my marriage. It doesn't make me feel alive. If a couple came to me saying, hey, how do I restore my marriage? Spend time together. Spend time together. Are you sharing life? Don't just watch your wedding videos. Don't just think about retirement. What are you doing right now? Share life together. I think this is what we need with Christ. This is what we need with Jesus. This is Jesus' invitation to us. Eugene Peterson, he says it like this, quote, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Jesus says, come to me. Get away with me, and you'll learn to recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Share a life with Jesus, where you really feel like he's here with me in my life right now. I like, how does that even look like? I like how one author broke it down, and we'll break this down throughout the next few months, but what does it mean to share a life with Jesus? Number one, be with Jesus. Number two, become like Jesus. Number three, do what Jesus did. 
Can you say yes to all three right now in your life? This is what we want to do as a church. Where Jesus is not just this memory in the past 2,000 years ago of what he's done, although amen to that. He's not just in the future where one day I'm going to reunite with him, although amen to that. But right now in the presence, Jesus is here with me in my life. Do we feel that? Do we feel that? Perhaps not much of that is new for some of us, and yet I can't help but think a lot of us, we don't feel that. We know Jesus loves us, we're committed to him, but we're not experiencing him right now. Because Jesus, he's just a counselor who's out there. He's not really the way. And I can't help but think that this is something we really need as a church. You know, I mentioned in our members, for those of us who are members, I mentioned our members meeting. I talked to all of y'all. A lot of you guys aren't doing well. A lot of you guys aren't doing, I mean, you're doing well financially, you're doing well relationally, but like spiritually, it's like, it's kind of a topic I could just tell it's difficult to want to talk about. And just know as a minister, that can be really discouraging. I, the analogy I use, it's like being at a doctor at a hospital and everyone's dying. And you're at a doctor. And it's like, oh, what do you do? And I, I, one thing that I kind of almost feel is there's almost not only we're struggling, but we've resigned that we struggled. There's a great resignation in the church that's there. And I, sometimes I'll text my pastor friends going, hey, how's, your, how's things? Like, are people doing well? And every pastor I talk to, they're like, not doing well. A lot of churches, they're just struggling. COVID, understandably so. COVID made things really hard. People aren't stopped going to church, or if they go to church, they kind of stop caring. They don't really seem alive. They don't really care they don't seem alive. They're kind of like, bleh. So churches are shrinking. Ministers are resigning all the time. And Christians, we're just discouraged. It's just discouraging. And, you know, I, sometimes when I think about it, it can be discouraging. One thing that gave me life recently, though, is I was listening to this podcast. It's called Rebuilders by this author named Mark Sayers. And Mark Sayers, he kind of flipped it saying, you know, you're right. Pastors, everybody listen to this. Everyone in the world, especially in the church, there is a spirit of resignation that we all feel. It's very discouraging. And that's why more than ever they need the church. That's why more than ever they need the church. And he told a story that, about this boy. This gets, again, sorry, I'm getting a little dark again. But <laughs> he tells a story of this boy in the UK. He was a six-year-old child. This, this six-year-old child, uh, he pretty much died from abuse and neglect from his parents. And what made this story really sad, not just that, but there was actually video of the child by himself in the room. There's like, you know, nanny cam. And the video of the boy, he's like screaming for his parents, but his parents, they just don't care because, you know, they're neglectful. And the saddest part is there's one video where the boy keeps repeating to himself, no one loves me, no one loves me, no one loves me. And eventually he dies. Now the problem is that there's a lot of people in the world experiencing a degree of that right now. People are hurting. People in our church are hurting. I know people in our church, they're disillusioned because their career is not panning out the way they thought it would. Our parents are getting older and people's parents are passing away. People are experiencing miscarriages. It's happening all the time. And I hear about this. And it's really burdensome to me. It's really burdensome. But you know what the hope was? What gave me hope? Sayers, he describes how this is what needs to happen. He said there was a picture of, he said what inspires him, there's a picture of this 19th century bridge. And in the bridge, there's a picture of this Salvation Army officer picking up this starving child, just one child running across the bridge. And pretty much he said, this is the church. This is what the church needs to be. In a world that's filled with broken people, that's what the church is called to do. And that just reoriented my heart where I realized, you know, I, when it comes to like uh, our church name and so forth, 
and like, are we going to be a trendy church? I really don't care anymore. I don't care how many Instagram followers we have. Who cares? I really don't care if people talk about the, what kind of church is this? Is this a church that's popping? Well, I don't care because that's what people talk about with churches. I really don't care when people talk about, hey, where's my friends? Which so, am, I in the, am I in the inner circle or the outer circle? Dude, I don't care anymore. That's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to have people whose heart is after the things that God's heart is after. God is after the broken, the weary, the suffering, the widow. The hope is that can our church be like that? Can our church care about the things that Jesus really cares about? And that happens when Jesus is with us and we're walking the way of Jesus. What if we made that our goal as members? I can't help but think that we will experience Christ in our lives and we'll be a city on a hill shining in a world of darkness where people are constantly going down a pit. But here at Buena Park High School, there's a community that has a new way, a different way of life. Because the ultimate solution of what we need for all the brokenness is a life with Jesus. It's a life with Jesus. And so this is the way our church hopes to go. Not just to know, but to really experience the love of God in our lives. We'll again explain what this looks like in the next few weeks a bit more. But one takeaway I want to leave and end with is don't keep doing what you're doing, church. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, let's consider our ways. Let's give thought to how are we living. Is the way of worldliness rooted in your heart? The greatest lie is thinking you could have both the world and God in your life without consequence. The reality is you're going to slowly lose your soul and there's countless stories telling that testimony. If you don't know where to start, simply come before the Lord in repentance and humility. Some of you, though, maybe it's not the way of the world, but it's just a way of religion. You've settled upon religion because it's really easy. You need to know that Jesus, in Christ, he caused you to let go of that. Come to let him into your heart. And we need to repent not just the bad things, but the good things we do. We need to repent of our church attendance. Repent of our Bible reading if we think that's what makes us right with God. And lastly, for those of us here, are you, are you ready to follow the way of Christ? In 2022, we need Christ in our lives again. The world needs churches where Christ is in the life of the community. Are you willing to walk with him? And so let's all pray together, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper in a little bit. Let's all pray.